0: My name is Malcolm. I have the privilege of leading the church here at uh, Dundonald. If you're here for the first time, thank you so much for taking the time to be with us and investing time in our uh, meeting today. And if you're joining us online, a very warm welcome to you too. We are going to approach this table. It's um, not ours. It is God's. Our conviction as a church family is that this is a moment that all Christians are invited to To remember what Jesus has done for them. To gain strength through eating bread that reminds you of Jesus' broken body for you. And to gain grace and strength through drinking uh, the juice which reminds you of Jesus' blood that was shed for you. If you're not yet a Christian, then please either commit your life to Jesus Christ now or don't take the bread. And don't, eat the, don't drink the juice as it is circulated. If you're not walking correctly with the Lord, can I encourage you to be determined to put that right as soon as you can? Again, if you choose not to do that, then please don't drink the juice or eat the bread. The reason for that is that the Bible says that on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took some bread and he broke it. And he gave thanks and he gave it to his disciples and he told them, This bread is my body broken for you. After they'd eaten, he took a cup and he drank from it and he gave it to them and he said, This cup is the new covenant or the new testament or the new promise of my blood shed for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Drink from it, all of you. Commenting on that a few years later, a man called Paul said this, Therefore, let a man or a woman examine themselves that they don't eat or drink, in a way that isn't appropriate. It's not my job to examine your heart. The communion table is never a place of discipline. It should never be that. It's a place of self-reflection where you must examine your own heart. So if you are walking with Jesus, then this table is for you. If you choose not to, then please don't eat the bread and drink the wine. Here at Dundonald, we like to do this in two simple ways. First of all, we remember that we are one body by holding on to the bread when it's distributed. And could the stewards please come forward? And I wonder if uh, Davy and Pip, you would mind just serving for me this morning. We hold the bread together and we'll eat it as one group. Uh, that reminds us that we are one body. And then when the cup is passed around, please drink it and place it back into the holder immediately. That's a reminder that this is also a personal thing. This is something that you must examine your heart for. So. As you eat bread and drink wine, come not because you must, but because you may. Come not because you love the Lord a lot. Come because you love him a little and you desire to love him more. Come and be met by the God who gives strength to the weak and faith to those that need it. In the name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you so much. If you need gluten free bread, then the little holders in the middle of the plates will provide you with that. Thank you. Thank you for your mercy, Lord. So, Father, we eat remembering your son. What can we say except thank you for how much you love us? Amen. Campbell, would you come and help me with the wine? To remember the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed for you. To remember the blood of Jesus shed for you. Thank you. from my the- of your church, and every eye will bow, and every tongue shall infest you, Jesus. Thank you that we are not tied together by denominational labels, by where we were brought up, by our politics, by our economic status, by our gender. We are tied together by Jesus. No one else has died for us, no one else has loved us so faithfully, no one else has forgiven us in the way that you have. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. So we gladly kneel before you today and tell you that we are grateful for what you have done. And we ask you to give us the grace to live intentionally with you at the center of our lives, whatever other questions we might have, whatever other uncertainties. And passions may rage within us. Lord Jesus Christ, be the center of our hearts. The center of our lives and the center of our decisions. In Jesus' powerful name we pray. And for his glory. Amen. Please do sit down. Thank you so much everybody for your leading and you're playing this morning. Last week, we began a series looking at the book of Acts and uh, entitled The Church on the Move. I gave you a a kind of overview of what we were going to be exploring last uh, Sunday morning. So if you have a Bible, would you please open it at the book of Acts and we're going to read the first four verses. If you want a title for what I'd like to share with you today, Under this overarching idea of a church on the move, this morning we're looking at a church for Christ and for his kingdom. Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. While staying with them, he ordered them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait there for the promise of the Father, that this, he said, is what you have heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Amen. God always blesses the public reading of his inspired and his infallible word. There is a reality for the Christian church that I think is often forgotten, but must never, ever, ever slip our minds if at all possible. And that is simply that without Jesus, without his power... We can't do anything. We might be able to do some things in our own strength, but they won't last. We can fill a church. We can bring about social change. We can bring about political change. We can bring about economic change. We can um, do all kinds of things, but nothing eternal. Nothing that will last beyond your lifetime or my lifetime or a generation or two, not without God. And the book of Acts is really the story, as I said last week, of a church that were being taught that without God, they couldn't do anything. On the night before Jesus was murdered, one of the things that he said to his disciples, recorded in John chapter 15, was very simply that, in verse 5, without me, you can do nothing. And yet, so very often in our lives, We turn to him as a last resort, as leaders, as pastors, as businesswomen, as businessmen, as mums, as dads, as husbands, as wives, as sons, as daughters, as teachers, as whatever it is, not just in church. It's as if we have our lives sorted out and we ask God to bless them rather than asking him to empower us to live well. I wonder if we are willing to allow the idea that without him we can do nothing to infiltrate our thinking to such an extent that we couldn't think of getting out of bed without asking him to go with us into the day. That we would want to get to a place where every decision we made, every priority that we set was somehow deeply rooted in God. Why would I encourage you to do that as your pastor? Because it's the best way to live. Lots of other ways of living that can bring fulfillment and joy and happiness, but not eternal fulfillment not eternal joy, not eternal happiness. The only thing that brings that is God at the center of our lives. And that's true not just for us individually, but for us as a church. And these first four verses of this book, they are so important because they set out the tone and the tenor, not just of the book, but of the early church. The church that many of us examine with awe and with a sense of frustration not wanting to go back to those days, but learning from it. In these pages, the 28 chapters of Acts, we learn what it is to be um, under pressure and yet faithful, to trust God, to follow him where he leads, to be open to new possibilities, to learn new things. Do you know that in the 28 chapters of Acts, there's a prayer meeting in every one, in one way or another. These people knew that they needed God, they needed his grace, they needed his strength, they needed his help, they needed his wisdom, They didn't want to do anything without him, and yet even they did. Barnabas and Paul argued in Acts chapter 13. They had to fight it out in Acts chapter 15 about who was in and who was out. In Acts chapter 6, they were arguing about the fact that some people were getting visited and others weren't. The Greeks and the Jews were falling out with each other. Um, In Acts chapter 5, two people called Ananias and Sapphira were getting it wrong, wanting to up to be, I think the Irish or the Northern Irish phrase would be the people in the big picture. And they could find out all the way through this book, there are flawed people. So the book of Acts is really an encouragement to us to learn what it looks like to put God at the center of our lives. As we explore these four verses this morning, I want to focus in on the patterns, the purpose, the plan, and the power that is demonstrated here and an encouragement to you because we are in some of the most exciting days that our church family has seen in 48 years. We're seeing people converted. We're seeing people added to our congregation. I think we have around 40 or 50 names, 40 names, 50. 50 names ready for membership on the 25th of November. That's quite good news, don't you think? Oh, well, all right. Sorry to disappoint you. We have people wanting to get baptized. Last Sunday morning in the little 8.30, broadcast that I do. I asked people to contact me if they wanted to become Christians or renew their faith in Jesus. I'm going through the book of Ephesians in that. There are about 4,000 people watching every week. Last Sunday morning, seven people began a relationship with Jesus. Six people uh, wanted to restore their relationship with Christ. And last Sunday night in this gathering, another eight people made a commitment to Christ to follow him. That is good news. God is doing remarkable things amongst us. And we have challenges. There are are challenges that you can't see. Not because they're too dark and mysterious, but when God is moving in a church, things are disrupted. When he's moving in somebody's life, he'll ask them to make difficult decisions. They might feel as if their life is turned upside down. They might find themselves in a different course to the one that they thought they were going to be on. But in the book of Acts, what we see is a church that is willing to pursue God and to pursue all that he wants And I I want to suggest to you a few things from this passage that I think will help us as we navigate the next few years together. The 25th of November is going to be an important day as we share vision and values as, as where we're going and what we sense God might be saying to us. And we hear what you think and we invite ourselves into a journey. We invite one another into a journey together. Thinking about what it means to be a church that is courageous, a church that is faithful, a church that is generous, a church that is missional, a church that is open, asking ourselves what would it look like to be a community that is growing numerically, growing spiritually, growing with our idea of mission, growing in anticipation, growing in excitement with Jesus rock solid at the center of who we are. How do we encounter God so that it's a a genuine encounter? Not just I've been to church and I've gone home, but a genuine encounter that transforms us, that renews us, that inspires us. How do we equip the saints so that you can be the best version of you, so that you can grow in your likeness of Jesus, that you can apply what you learn in our community of faith into your daily living as a nurse, as a mum, as a dad, as a business person, as somebody that works in the police or the army or whatever it is you might do. How do we help you to engage with your community, where you live, where you work, where you go to the gym, where you do life? How do we help you to reach the world, to see a vision and a passion of God moving across the island of Ireland? They're all the things that we're excited about and we want to talk to you about. But what's the pattern? What's the blueprint for us in all of that? I think we find it in these first four verses. The first thing that I want to suggest to you very simply and very profoundly is that this is a ministry. There's a pattern for ministry that is placed at the very beginning of this book that we should follow. We are following Jesus Christ and what he said and did. Do you notice what it says in verse one? Luke mentions Theophilus. I think he was probably the high priest in the temple in Jerusalem between 37 and 41. Other people might think differently. The book of Luke was also written for him. But if you read verse one, in the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning, One other way of translating that, the NIV might do this, the authorised version may do it as well, is I wrote about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up to heaven. The ministry of Jesus Christ has not ended. It didn't end with his ascension. It didn't end with his death and resurrection, which happened before that. It doesn't end now. You continue it. The early church understood that they were carrying on what Jesus had started, that they were people that were going to reflect Jesus to the world. The first time that we were called Christians was in Antioch. Up until that point, we were described as followers of the way, followers of Jesus. So the pattern for our ministry is Jesus. The pattern for our ministry is not Elam, It's not our denomination. It's not our stream. The pattern for our ministry is our savior. How did Jesus minister? That's the way we should minister. What did he do? That's what we should seek to do. What were his priorities? That's what our priorities should be. And when you allow that to begin to sink into your consciousness, you begin to see some beautiful and pretty challenging things. Who did he reject? Nobody. Who did he demand to change before he would love them? Nobody. Here is a man who always told the truth, a savior that always walked in righteousness that never wasted his words, that was kind and compassionate and merciful, and yet was like a laser with religious people, wasn't afraid to challenge at all, described the Pharisees and the scribes as broods of vipers and whited sepulchers and told them seven times, woe to you in Matthew chapter 23. I think some people can sometimes think that following the pattern of Jesus leads to a kind of bland niceness, a kind of Christianity which is kind of Lovely. It's all salmon sandwiches and quiche. I heard last week that in Northern Ireland, at Christian funerals, you like to eat wholemeal Mars bar and apple sandwiches. Has anybody ever heard of anything more revolting in all of your life? But we can have a pattern and understanding of church which is awfully nice awfully middle class, awfully acceptable, awfully unconfrontational, um, awfully easy. Let me say to you that if we're going to pattern our ministry on the example of Jesus, we are in for some pretty bumpy rides. He was a man who challenged, who spoke right into the very heart of people. And the ministry that he began continues in us. We hear that when we are told by Jesus in John chapter 14, verse 12, that we will continue what he has started. Greater things than me will you do, we are told. How is the ministry of Jesus continuing in you? Do the people around you see him? If you were to scan the last week, were there moments when you thought, yes, I reflected Jesus to that person? I took a moment to smile, I listened to a story. Sometimes your plans get disrupted when you're following the pattern of Jesus. He asks you to do things that are difficult and uncomfortable and you have to reorientate your life. Sometimes he'll ask you to do very uncomfortable things, to tell the truth when it's hard, to hold somebody's hand when they're going through pain, to lift and carry and love people. But there's more to Jesus's ministry than all those lovely, easy to understand, even if hard to do things. You see, there's another verse in here. There's another phrase that I want to just highlight to you, which I think is more challenging Read verse one with me again. In the first book, Theophilus, I wrote about all that Jesus did and taught from the beginning until the day when he was taken up to heaven. That's the ascension. After giving instructions through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen. Do you see the phrase? All that Jesus did and taught. The pattern of Jesus' ministry was not lecturing, It wasn't simply telling people what to think and giving them space to think it out. Jesus did something and taught something. He was committed to word and deed. If you want a more technical phrase, he was committed to a demonstration of the Spirit's power and an explanation of who he was. Now, I want to say something to you that is difficult for many people. We are not a faithful New Testament church, if we have excused away the absence of a demonstration of the Spirit's power. God wants to move in power in his church. He wants to demonstrate his grace and his mercy. He wants to evidence who he is. If you think that's a very Pentecostal idea, well, the hint is kind of in the fact that you're sitting in a Pentecostal church. But it's not a Pentecostal idea. It's a biblical idea. You see, throughout the New Testament, what you see is a demonstration of power and an explanation of who God is. Throughout Jesus' ministry, he healed, he challenged the demonic, he set people free, he spoke in life and power, he included people, he broke through social barriers. I'm not just talking about the miraculous. He did dangerous things. He went further so that people could encounter and experience God There's an awful, awful tendency in evangelical Protestantism, if you don't mind me telling you that. And it is that we can just explain God. We can't explain God. We've got to encounter him as well. I don't mean you're driven by emotionalism. I don't mean that you become somebody that's just looking for the next great thing from one experience to another. That's not what I mean. But do not throw the baby out with the bathwater. The early church was a church of power and of presence. People knew that God was moving amongst them. We are going through a difficult period as a church family as we watch some people who are being taken to heaven. And we are praying with them and holding their hands and walking that journey with them. And yet at the same time, We have a conviction that the God that brings life and the God that sometimes brings death is also the God that can still heal people, that can still set people free, that can still give people power and purpose and meaning, that can still intervene in history and time. There is nothing too difficult for God. Now, I think that we as a church have to learn that again. I think we have to allow ourselves to be open to the demonstration of the Spirit's power. And I'm going to say something to you that may well put the brakes on our growth. It may well cause some of you to say, you know what, I don't want to be part of that church. We believe in the power of the Holy Spirit here. He has a right to interrupt our meetings. He has a right to disrupt our preaching. He has a right to do whatever he wants because this isn't our church, it's his. And as we move into all that God wants, I cannot guarantee you that we will be a a very comfortable church to be in. I can't guarantee you that we'll always do the things that you want. I can't rule out that the Holy Spirit might want to move amongst us in fresh power. The early church was a church that was full of power and a demonstration of the Spirit's presence. That's the pattern of Jesus' ministry. Are you hungry for that? Interestingly enough, John Calvin, who's hardly known for his association with the Elam movement, described the connection between word and deed as a holy knot. That a church is not operating in all that God wants it to do unless it has that knot tied at the center of it. I don't know about you, but I can tell you that I am, in a very good way, not in an existentially crisis-driven way, I am desperate to see God moving again in Northern Ireland. And I don't just mean with services that are full, I mean, I'm desperate to see his power at work. Families healed. Relationships restored. Bodies touched. People set free. I'm desperate to see him break through the religious nicety of so much that we do. And evidence his power and his presence in a way that leaves people speechless and breathless in wonder. And I want him to do it here. I want to be part of a church that is open to the Holy Spirit, open to his miraculous intervention, open to his word, open to his power, open to his presence, open to his grace, open to all that God wants to do. I wonder, do you want that pattern of ministry? The principles behind that kind of ministry are also seen in Acts chapter 1. Verses 1 to 4. It's not rooted in us, it's rooted in him. I want you to look for a moment at verse 3. After his suffering, he presented himself alive to them by many convincing proofs, appearing to them over the course of 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. The principle of the church is rooted. We must be rooted in the crucifixion and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. After he suffered, he rose again. There's an awful lot of churches that want to just preach the the death of Jesus. That is central to any understanding of the gospel. He died for our sins according to the scriptures. Amen? 1 Corinthians 15 verse 1. But Paul goes on from that and says... And on the third day, he rose again according to the scriptures. That is also part of our gospel proclamation. I could show you churches that are so focused on the death of Jesus that they have forgotten the resurrection of Jesus. And I could show you others that are so focused on the resurrection of Jesus that they have forgotten the cross of Jesus. Normally, that means that people that are so focused on everything that God can do now that they they will tell you things like, you won't suffer, you won't struggle, you won't go through hardship. There's nothing to fear. You're never going to be poor. You're never going to go through a hard time. You're never going to have uncertainty because Jesus is alive. That's a lie. You will go through suffering. You will have a hard time. You will face uncertainty. Your heart will be broken. You might get sick. But it doesn't change the fact that Jesus Christ is alive. He has defeated death and sin and hell, and the story isn't over yet. I could show you others that are so afraid of resurrection power that they've boxed it into a historic reality that happened 2,000 years ago, and it has absolutely no bearing on the present state of their affairs or their life. So they preach the cross. But you leave every week feeling more and more and more guilty, more and more and more helpless and powerless. Jesus died and rose again. That's what we preach. That's what we proclaim. That's what we live. He died and he rose again. There's hope in any congregation when they recognize what Christ has done in dying and what he has achieved in rising. If his cross was the divine no to sin, then his resurrection is the divine yes to life. And we hold them both at the same time. That means that we identify with the pain of the world. We see the struggles. We know what's wrong with society. We know what's wrong with Northern Ireland. We know what's wrong in our own lives. We know what's wrong in families. We know what's wrong in economies. We know why the Labour Party conference last week and the Tory Party conference this week isn't going to give us the answer. It is sin that is the problem. But we also know that there's a solution. God has carried the weight of it. And we know what the answer is. Not our cleverness, but God's power at work in us. If our pattern is Jesus, then the principles by which our church must live and work is that we believe that the cross has dealt with sin and the resurrection offers us life. And we are people who live in the reality of both of those realities. Both of those um, existential realities become our experience. Jesus describes the reign and rule of God in Acts chapter 1, verses 1 to 4, as the kingdom of God. He spent 40 days teaching his disciples, his apostles, about it. What is the kingdom of God? It is the reign and the rule of God evidenced in our lives and in our culture. And it has been established, nothing can break it. Nothing can destroy it. Nothing can remove it. God's kingdom will come. It will one day be fully established. This week, I sat on a chair beside a man who I don't want to die. And I read to him from John chapter 14, John chapter 15, John chapter 16, Revelation chapter 21, Revelation chapter 22, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Psalm 23, Psalm 46, Romans chapter eight, not all at once, over three different days. I spent half an hour or so reading with him and then singing over him. Why am I telling you that? Because the reality is we live in a tension between all that God has established and seeing the proof of it in its entirety. It's called an already, not yet tension. The kingdom has come in Jesus. When he came announcing the kingdom, he preached it, he taught it, he demonstrated it, he showed people it. And he demonstrated the kingdom by healing people. He demonstrated the kingdom by delivering people from demons. He demonstrated the kingdom by intervening in nature. He demonstrated the, the kingdom by choosing husbands and nobodies in the bottom of society. He demonstrated it by the way he lived and the way he shared. He demonstrated it by the principles that he lived by, living in community, loving people, welcoming them, accepting them. He demonstrates it by being an inclusive saviour, a saviour that empowers women, that releases men, that welcomes children. He demonstrates the kingdom and all of its power, the reign and rule of God, where there is neither Jew nor Gentile, Greek or barbarian or Scythian or free, but all are one in Christ Jesus. And he demonstrates it in what he does and who he is. But he also demonstrates that it is not fully established by dying. He didn't sign, seal, and deliver and say from now on there'll be nothing that will go wrong. That's known as an overrealized eschatology, and it destroys people's lives. We believe that one day there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sin. There'll be no more pain. There'll be no more sorrow. There'll be no more sadness. There'll be no more hurt. There'll be no more sin. One day. We believe that that was all secured in what Jesus Christ did that there's nothing to be added to it and nothing to be taken away from it. But we recognize that we live in a world that is fallen. And therefore, between those two great moments, the church stands as a witness to the power and mercy of Almighty God. And when we go through suffering and when we go through sorrow and when we go through struggle, we point back to God and say, even when the evidence seems to suggest that God is not there, we believe he is. And one day, it will all be okay. In the end, it will all be okay. And if it's not all okay, it's not the end. And in the meantime, we sit beside people that are dying. And we look into their eyes and we say to them, this isn't the end of this story. We go into families where divorce is happening, where a woman is left to bring up children because her husband decides to leave. And she would do everything she could to keep that man in her life. And we look her in the eye and we say, this isn't the end. This story doesn't end here. Your story doesn't end here. We look at people that have been made redundant, people that have become disabled, people that are living with mental illness, people that are struggling with life, people that feel alone, people that have had their prayers unanswered. And we say, this is not the end of this story. We believe in a stronger, bigger picture of the kingdom than that. And we hold out that hope to the world, but we're not people who promise things that God hasn't said. That might mean some of you want to leave because we're not Pentecostal enough. Strikes me that if the plan of God is demonstrated in Jesus, if the principles of God are shown in his death and his resurrection and in being kingdom people, then we need something that can enable us to do all of that. And in verse four, Jesus says to his disciples, do not leave Jerusalem until you receive power from on high. John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. We are called to live according to the plan, to submit our ministry and our life together to the principles of Jesus, his death, his resurrection, and his kingdom. And you need his power. Now, we're into very controversial theology. Jesus uses a phrase here. John baptized, but I will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. What is the baptism of the Holy Spirit? Can you be filled with the Spirit and not know it? According to the Bible, the Spirit's power is given to a believer so that they might know that they are redeemed, so that they might be guided into all truth, so that they might be convicted of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come, so that they might have a clearer understanding of scripture, so that they might see fruit grow in their lives of love and joy and peace and gentleness and faithfulness and meekness and temperance and kindness, so that they might be given gifts that they didn't have naturally, to preach or to pray or to believe. Some are given gifts to speak in languages that they have not known. Some are given gifts to interpret interpret those languages. Some are given gifts of miracles. Some are given the gift of praying for the sick and seeing them healed. Some are given gifts of discernment. Some are given gifts of wisdom. Some are given gifts of leadership. Some are given gifts of administration. Some are given gifts of generosity. Some are given gifts of hospitality, But the picture of the New Testament church is a church that was so dependent on the power and the presence of the Holy Spirit that they couldn't function without him. That same spirit is alive today and he wants to encounter every believer. The Bible makes clear in Ephesians chapter one that you cannot become a Christian without the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit being at work in your life. It's impossible to be a believer and not somehow have the Spirit residing within you. We're told that very clearly. He is a spirit of adoption. He gives us a seal. He reminds us who we are. So those of you that have felt like second-class Christians for years, because you may or may not have experienced the baptism of the Holy Spirit, can I tell you something? There is no such thing as a second-class Christian. Every believer has been given the presence and the power of the Holy Spirit. Can somebody say amen? You're not so sure. You're going to be even less sure about what I'm about to say. The Bible makes clear that there is an experience of the Spirit's power available to all believers, which is described as the baptism of the Holy Spirit. Now, somebody once said to me, can I be baptized in the Holy Spirit and not know it? The answer is, if you can be baptized in water and not know it. The word baptizo means, and please if you're from a a non-immersive background, don't get offended with me. I'm not trying to have a fight with you. But the word baptizo in the Bible means to immerse, to saturate, to soak through to the core. So when you are baptized with the Holy Spirit, you are soaked through to the core with his power he immerses you in his power now in the New Testament there are different ways of expressing that some Jesus sometimes says from your belly will flow rivers of living water here in Acts it's talked about as a baptism actually I don't care (laughs) I don't care whether you talk about being filled being baptized being immersed I don't care whether you think something flows out of you or something flows into you I don't care what I do care about is that you experience the power of God because without the power of God at work in your life, you can't live the Christian life successfully. The early church was baptized in power. It didn't just play around with it about the edges. It was They were baptized in power. They were immersed in power. I wonder how desperate you are for God to fill you. I could take you to some other Pentecostal denominations and they will say to you, well, if you're baptized with the Holy Spirit, Pip, you have to speak in a language that you haven't learned. We don't believe that. We don't believe that the gift of tongues is the only way of evidencing the power of the Holy Spirit. What we believe is that when you're filled with the Holy Spirit, he might give you a deep assurance of your salvation. He might give you a deep sense of joy. He might give you a hunger for his word. He might release praise in you. All of the things that I said a moment or two ago, it's up to him. It's his spirit, not mine. But what I would want you to do is leave this church building this morning knowing this. We believe that there is an experience for the believer of the power of God immersing, saturating, soaking, releasing, enabling, and strengthening them. And some of you are frightened of that. You want us to be a church where that will never happen. I can't give you that guarantee. Because God wants to empower you. He wants to release his spirit in you, in a fresh and in a new way. He doesn't want you just to carry on as if he's there to ask for help as and when. He wants our lives to be orientated in such a direction that without him we can do nothing. How desperate are you for God's power? How much do you realize that you need him? The filling and the presence of the Holy Spirit is a promise for all believers. Peter makes it very, very clear in Acts chapter two, which we will unpack when we get to it. The promise is for you and for your children and for your children's children and for as many as are afar off for all whom the Lord our God will call. This is a landmark sermon for Elam, Dundon Elam Church. Do you want to know why? Because when you're in a season of growth like this, you attract so many wonderful godly people from so many different distinctives. And each brings with them their own distinctives. I bring mine too. But I want you to remember that we are a church that believes in the present power of the Holy Spirit. He has free reign here. Now, that might be difficult for some, but I can't make it any less difficult. See, I'm not chasing numbers. I'm not trying just to count the seats and say, oh, we've got another one in and another one in and another one in. Growth doesn't just look like more and more people coming. Growth looks like us encountering God together. About him moving in our lives. I'm convinced That God wants to empower you to live a different Christian life. How often do I need to be filled with the Holy Spirit? Did it happen once 30 years ago? I hope not. There's a little thing that I could do with you, but I've probably done it before, I should think. How often do you breathe? I was with a man this morning in hospital and his respiratory rate is sitting at about 27. That's very fast. I think medical experts or nurses looking at Rhonda would tell me it should be about 16 breaths per minute. That's how often I need to be filled with the spirit, with 16 breaths a minute. Every breath I breathe, I'm breathing in his power. Every breath I breathe, I'm breathing in spiritual life. But there have been moments in my life. There was one particular moment when I sensed, when I experienced, when I felt, when I knew that God's power was being released in me in the profoundest of ways. Doesn't happen every day, but I can point to moments in my life where God has filled me with his grace and with his mercy. Have you experienced the mercy of God saturating your soul? Are you relying on your own strength and your own intellect and on your own ability? Or are you willing to say, God, I need you. I need your grace. Some of us are going through Christian lives which are so dry. And yet we're afraid to let God fill us. We're going through all the motions, but deep in our hearts, when nobody else is looking, we know that there's something else for us. There's an encounter, there's a power, there's a freedom, there's a release that God wants to give to us. Our witness is dry. We don't see the things happening that we expect. We feel like we're living with pockets with holes in them. We put something in that falls out and we put something in that falls out. We're deeply dissatisfied. We're deeply, deeply, deeply unhappy with our spiritual lives. And one of the things that can release us is a touch from God a release of the Spirit's power into our lives. It won't make us perfect. It doesn't make us sinless. It doesn't create in us this kind of space where we never get things wrong, but it's power to live. Some of us long for a breaking in of the Spirit's power so that our worship can be released, so that our praise can be released, so that our reading of the Bible can be illuminated so that our prayer for the sick will see them healed, so that our sense of God's direction will be clearer, so that the world might be one, so that our church might be alive with the electricity of the presence of the Holy Spirit. I don't want to come to church week in and week out and say do you know what we start at 11 we finish at a quarter past 12 we get the children out at half past 11 we have communion done by a quarter to 12 the sermon's finished by quarter past 12 the coffee's done, everybody's out everything's done, every week always the same because we like our pattern I want our church family to be a community where people say do you know what God moves there lives are changed there Sinners are saved there. Marriages are restored there. People are built again there. Hopelessness is destroyed there and hope is planted in people's souls. Would you not like that to be our church? We will never see it without the power of the Holy Spirit. I can preach to you until I am blue in the face Unless God moves here, it'll not achieve anything. Our church's growth is not being fueled by clever schemes and clever ideas and clever plans. Our church is seeing God moving. We're seeing lives changed. We're seeing people that have been struggling with addiction coming off it. We're seeing folk whose marriages have been in trouble beginning to find a way forward. We're seeing others released from the pain and the sorrow of betrayal and heartbreak. We're seeing people that weren't Christians become Christians. We are seeing God move. Now, I want to be really careful about this because I don't want to sound as if I'm begging you up. We now stand on a threshold. Every one of you that is part of our church family, Maybe you stand on this threshold in your own life. Will you let God move further and deeper? Will you let him draw you on? Or will you retreat to safety? The only person, the only people that can put a lid on what God wants to do in our church is us. We're entering a territory where it will be messier. Where people will be drawn into our community. I think God has told me this. Converted. That are messy. Thank God for that. We'll see very unexpected people arriving. Will you make room for them? We'll see God begin to move into the disruptive bits of our lives that we don't want anybody, we don't want them to move in. Will you give God more time? Will you give him a greater space in your life? I hear people saying all the time, I want more of you, Lord. I want more of you. Do you know what I think God says back? That's the wrong way around, son. I want more of you. The more of you you give to me, the more of me you'll see. Do you want more of me? A church patterned on Jesus, a church with the principles of the cross and the resurrection and the kingdom at its heart, and a church full of empowered people. What might that look like? Well, now you have to make a decision. Shall we pray? Take a moment with God. And if you need him to touch you, tell him. I need your power, Lord. I need you to fill me afresh with your spirit or fill me for the first time. I need you to release your power in me. I want all you have to give me. Whatever you want to give me, give me, Lord. whatever you want to do in my life do you i'm surrendering every part of myself to you as much as i know how to and i'm asking you to encounter me in fresh and new ways lead me into all that you want take away fear Help me not to compare myself to others, but give me everything you have for me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Now we are done, but we're not done. Here's what I want to do. I'm going to need the help of the eldership with this um, and the diaconate, please, the church leadership team. I'm gonna sing a closing song with you. It's an old song. Um, the worship team didn't know it and they have very graciously have lost Lily, oh there she is, have learned it this week. It's a beautiful song called, O breath of God Come sweeping o'er us. We're gonna sing it together. And then very unusually for me, I'm not gonna to go to the door. I'm gonna pronounce a benediction, but I'm going to invite those of you that want to stay to stay because I'd like the opportunity to pray with as many of you that want to receive prayer. Now that might mean that you're going to be here until one o'clock. It might mean that you get to the front of the queue and you're away at 25 to one. I'll leave it up to you to fight your way out. But as many of you as want, and I, I am not a great believer in kind of um, prayer ministry lines where you sense as if you know, one person has the power to transform your life. That's not what I'm doing. But the Bible teaches something called the laying on of hands. And there is a sense in which the early church had a sense of God's presence amongst them. Actually, nowhere in the New Testament is there evidence of a prayer line where people said, please fill me with the Holy Spirit. Now, some of you will be really upset about that, but it's not in the Bible. But there is a sense of people gathering before God and saying, you see where we are, you see what we want to do for you, you see how we want to live for you. Give us the grace and the mercy and the boldness and the courage to do that. So when we finish this meeting, if you would like to receive prayer that your life might reflect and radiate the glory of God, that his power and mercy might flow through you. I'm not asking you simply, can I get filled with the Holy Spirit? That's not the prayer I want to pray for you. The prayer I want to pray for you is, do you want to be emboldened for service? You want God to give you everything that you need so that your life can be fruitful and evidentially centered on Jesus. Do you need a fresh touch of grace on your life so that you can radiate his power and his mercy and his goodness to the world? Are you desperate for him? Do you need him? Then I'd love the opportunity to pray for you.